Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of God's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, January the 15th, 2023, the second Sunday after the Epiphany. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate this very much. It's been a, uh, an interesting kind of a week. We had to postpone our trip to uh, Chattanooga to see my mother over Christmas because there was a COVID outbreak in the um, place where she's living. And so we, we went this week, and because I postponed it, we postponed it until a group of uh, friends of mine from high school get together once a month. And so I wanted to be there and get together with those guys, and so we... Uh, we postponed it until that gathering, and so we had a great time, uh, stopped in Knoxville on the way there, spent some time with um, Suzanne's sister and our brother-in-law, and had dinner with them that night, and then went the next morning, had lunch with my buddies, Suzanne had lunch with somebody else, and then that evening had dinner with um, my brother and his wife, and then the next day went down and saw Suzanne's brother <laughs> in, in just a little bit south of town and went down and, and had lunch with uh, them and then came back and had dinner with old friends that night. So And then um, then came back through Knoxville, but um, fortunately we, we, had, we knew we were going to be a little bit late that afternoon, so we um, had already planned to, to not come home on Friday, and, and I'm glad we didn't because there was snow in the mountains, and so... We uh, came on home the next day on Saturday, and so it was a, uh, a good trip. I'm glad to see a bunch of old friends. had a, had a great time. It was it was a really um, really blessed time of being with a whole bunch of people that are you know old friends, people that we've known for a very very long time in most cases. So it was it was great, and uh, glad to be back here for a little while. We're not going out of town for a little bit. We're going to go out of town. After Suzanne's birthday, we're going to take a little trip uh, for a few days, and then we've got to go to Knoxville the week right after that. <clears throat> we'll be back for a couple of days, and then we go to Knoxville and do a family wedding. So looking forward to that. I'm going to see some friends while we're there as well. So anyway, it's been um, an interesting couple of weeks. So you'll know we got the autopsy report on our son, Will, this week. Um it didn't really tell us very much. Not, you know, it didn't say here's exactly what happened. What it said essentially was it was um, sort of a, an, an inevitability after the the fall, the accident that he that he had in in March of 2021. Um, they attributed all to that uh, from the seizure activity and uh, the underlying condition that was causing the seizure activity is what they they. Um, attribute the, his death to. And so um, we didn't get any answers, but there are two things that we take away from it, just so you'll know. One of those is is that, that it seems that it was inevitable. Um, I, it, but it also speaks again to the, to the incredible grace of God in healing him to start with in, in March of 2021, even though we had him only for another year. Um, the incredible grace of God that he could have taken him at that time but at that time, I honestly wouldn't have known what I could have said or how I would have handled it um, because I, I didn't know what his faith was, to be perfectly honest with you, in March of 2021. By the time we, that he died in April of 2022, I knew for certain what his faith was. And so God gave us and Will, I believe, a great gift in, in restoring his life 
and then more than that, becoming his life, becoming eternal life, and, and giving us that certainty um, that, that we wouldn't have had in 2021. And so very, very grateful for that. Um, God just, in my mind, it magnifies his glory and his greatness, just that so you'll know how, how we see that. It magnifies it so much to know that this was an inevitability, at least from the medical perspective. Um, but, it, but it was equally inevitable in March of 2021 when they told us there was basically no hope and that he wouldn't survive. Not only did he survive, he lived, and we got a glorious period of time with him. And so I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but the second thing is there was nothing in the report that suggested there was anything knowable outside um, doing this kind of a, an intensive medical examination of the brain. There was not really anything that, that we could have known and done anything about or changed in any way. We had done everything we could do um, physically and medically for him. So grateful for that, uh, grateful for that report, even though I would like to have said, okay, he had a heart attack or okay, he had an aneurysm or something like that. But neither of those was indicated. There was nothing. That, that it was. It, it's kind of baffling, frankly. Um, it, it's just It's just very... It, it, I don't know. The whole thing, the last two years almost now, have been utterly baffling to me. Um, but but the good news is that God not only healed him in a, in a situation where there was no healing possible, but he, he did so in order to save him and in order to give us that certainty that we live with today. And so for that, I will be eternally grateful. So anyway, I just wanted to give you a heads up on kind of where that is and, and, and where we are with that. So it was, a, you know, kind of a rough thing to receive. Um, there's a there's a there's a finality and a closure and a whatever to that. Um, I, I'm positive that that doesn't mean that we're done grieving, um, but nonetheless, it was it was another sort of milepost along the way. And so it's it's um, I don't know maybe it's, it's at some level it's time to to begin to look forward for us, and, and I think that's where we are. So anyway, uh, I hope the Lord has blessed your week. I, I hope that He has shown Himself to you and revealed Himself to you. It do in fresh ways this week, as he is wont to do, and as he wants to do. So what we're going to look at this week is that whole issue of revealing, because that's what epiphany is. It's, it's revealing, revelation, showing. Now, there's two sides to that, right? Um, and, and we can see that very clearly. He came to his own, and his own knew him not. So he revealed himself, but there has to be somebody on the other end of that to receive the revelation and to believe the revelation. Those are two different things, right? I mean, I can see things. They saw his healings. They saw the things that he did. They heard the things that he said, and yet they didn't receive him. And that's the the problem is on the receiving end, always, period, end of sentence. He's done everything that he could possibly do to make himself known, and, and the problem is on the receiving end. And so I, I'm asking that, that for for you, for your friends who don't know him, who don't believe, you know, militant atheists or, or not, be praying for him, that the Lord would work by his Holy Spirit in them so that they would receive him as well. Because it's a complete work of God. Salvation is a complete work of God beginning to end. It's, it's something he does in us as his chosen to make us able to receive the revelation and to rejoice then in that revelation, because that should be the result, right? So once we've received it, we should rejoice in it. And, and so that's exactly what we want to look at today. You, know, you can probably just turn it off now, because that's really the point of the whole message. Uh, hopefully I have something important and interesting to say along the way, though. So <clears throat> it begins with Isaiah 49, 1-7, and it's a proclamation. 
and it says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. All right, who is me? Listen to me, you coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The, the speaker here is the Messiah. It's the chosen one of God. This is Jesus speaking. And so when he says the coastlands, what he's doing is, he's and the peoples from afar, he's extending the reach of his message right from the beginning. He's not saying, listen to me, O people of Israel. No, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. He's, he, he's stretching this message to, to include the entire world. He said, the Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named my name. And we know that. We know that absolutely to be true in Jesus in particular. We see also, we see echoes here of Psalm 139, where, where we were knit together in the mother's womb, and then the same thing in Jeremiah when God assures the prophet that I knew you when I created you in your mother's womb. And here it's the same way. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He, called, he named my name. So this call has always been on me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. And, and, and this, is, this is the Messiah, the servant of God, rejoicing in that truth, resting in that truth. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. We see that again and again and again in the life of Jesus. We see it in, in uh, Hebrews 4, where we see that, it, that, that the word of God is like a two-edged sword. We see it also in Revelation 1 when we first meet the risen Lord in the book of the Revelation and a sword from his mouth, and it's the word of God. And then we see in the judgment of God later in Revelation, we see exactly the same thing. We see that, that in Revelation 19, 15, that, that the one who is coming and bringing vengeance is the one who has the sword coming from his mouth. And so he has confidence in the word of the Lord and the ability of the Lord to put the words into his mouth. His mouth is like a sword, a sharp sword. Now, that's in contrast, let's say, to Moses, who said to God, I, I can't speak well. That's not my forte. I can't go to Pharaoh and say anything because I'm slow of speech. It's not what I'm gifted at. And you can hear God's frustration, and he says, all right, you think not. All right, here comes Aaron, your brother. I'll let him be your mouthpiece. Well, that didn't go all that well. <laughs> it, it, Aaron's the one who made the golden calves. And so Moses finds his confidence in his mouth along the way, and he becomes an eloquent spokesman for God. He's the one through whom God gives the word. He's the one through whom God gives the law. And so he's the one who has to speak not only to Pharaoh, but to the people. And along the way, he finds his footing. But here, this one proclaims right from the beginning, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. He's trusting in the one who made his mouth. The one who formed him in the womb is the one who made his mouth. And so he trusts in that. And in the shadow of his hand, he hid me word there is really more properly translated something like concealed or protected. And if you want to think, well, how are concealed and protected the same way? Think about Revelation 12, 
something I've talked about a fair bit lately, where we see this, the woman in, in, in birth, about to give birth, and the dragon comes because it wants to kill this child before it's born. And, and so what does God do? He protects him. And so he has protected him, Jesus, and he protects him all along through his ministry until the time for protection to go away. And so he, but he has concealed him as well. He's concealed him not only from the Jews, this Messiah, he's concealed him not only from the Jews, but from the world as well. And there's an appropriate time when he reveals him. And so here in the season of Epiphany, the season of revealing, that's exactly what we're looking at, is the unfolding revelation once Jesus comes into the world. This is the revelation prior to his coming into the world, about 600 years before. And this is a revelation to whom? It's to the people who have been in exile in Babylon. And Isaiah, God through Isaiah, is encouraging them that this is not the end of the story, that there is one who will come and bring great glory, and and yet he has been concealed until the right time. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver he had hid me away. And so a quiver is the thing that holds the arrows and so Jesus says there's one particular arrow, the, this Messiah figure speaking here, says there's a particular arrow, and that's me, that he's holding until the appropriate time before he reaches into that quiver and pulls out that arrow that has a particular purpose and then draws back the bow. But there's a time when it's appropriate to bring forth that polished arrow. And, and then... He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I am glorified. And what he means by that is, you are the true Israel. You will do what I intended the nation to do, which is to make me known and to glorify me, so that the world will see and will come. That was the purpose of Israel. It's the purpose of the church today. The purpose of the church is no different from the purpose of the, of the nation it doesn't mean that we are the nation now, that we've taken the place of the nation. That's not what I'm saying at all. No, but our purpose is the same. The purpose of Israel remains the same, to make him known. And, and that's why Paul, in, in Romans 11, says is that, that we are essentially there, Paul says, in order to make them jealous, in order that they might come in, and, and that they are the natural branch. We're the, we're the, the unnatural branch that's been grafted in, to them. We haven't replaced Israel at all. We've been grafted in until the time for the fullness of the Gentiles come, and then all Israel will be saved. So our purpose is the same as the nation of Israel's per intended purpose by God. But they rejected Jesus, and so now it's impossible to glorify God in the way he intended without raising up his son. So our job is to raise up Jesus in the same way their job was to raise up their God. And, and, and so we are to do that in every way possible in our individual lives and in the life of the body of Christ. And I don't mean just your body of Christ, I mean the body of Christ. And you're going to see that in, in the passage we read from 1 Corinthians. So you're my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The, the purpose of the nation was to, that through them, God would be glorified. Jesus is the means by which God is glorified. And so when we hold up Jesus, we're holding up not just the Son, but the Father. And we do so through the power and the, 
inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's the three in one, the triune God, all being glorified in the same way. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. That, that word vanity should be very familiar. It's the same word that's used often in, in Ecclesiastes. And it's vanity, vanity, all is vanity. This is vanity, that's vanity. And it's right, anything under the sun, Solomon says, is vanity. Only those things that are above the sun are not vanity. And so we should chase hard after those things. And so when, when the, this figure says, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity, what he's saying is, it looks like I've failed. Which sounds very much like what Jesus says from the cross when he cries out the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But that's not the end of the story. Nor is it the end of the, the psalm, Psalm 22, from which it's taken. That psalm doesn't end in that place. That's not the way that it ends. It's the way that it begins, not the way that it ends. It's the recognition of, of who I am. And again, all of this, every single bit of Psalm 22, from which Jesus quotes from the cross, is included in this place. It's included in this passage. Yet you who took me, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help me. And then it goes on and on. And yet at the end, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In spite of the fact that it looks like through all of this, he will be lost and he will die. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation will I praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. In other words, the way that it looks today is not the way that it will look at the end. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules the nations. And so he goes on and on. So what looks like defeat in the beginning of Psalm 22 becomes ultimate victory for God. And it's the same here because what what he's saying is I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. It looks for all the world like I've wasted my time. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. In other words, what he says is God's going to have the final word on this in the same way that Job proclaims that when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he'll stand on the earth and in my eyes I will see God, I and not another. So they're willing to say, today it looks like this, but I know that in the end it looks this way. And so Job's story Right has provided inspiration and hope for millions, for thousands of years. Job was right. I don't know where you are in your life today, whether you're in despair in this way, but the final word is not written. The final word on your life is not written. I know that, that we there, there were times after I, I uh, stepped away here that I felt like I had wasted my time and maybe what I had done was come to the wrong place. Did I really hear God when I came here? And God has shown me again and again and again, John, you're measuring the wrong way. You have no earthly idea what your impact was and is to this day because the people that you raised up, the people that are now in ministry, the people that are, that are doing things, we, we have no earthly idea what our impact is. We, we just know that there's a ripple effect that's there. And as long as we're obedient to God's call and we continue to be obedient to that call, as long as it's there, then, then we know that God's word will not return to him void. That's Isaiah 59, 55. It'll accomplish the purpose for when she sent it. 
We have to be confident in that. In the same way, this one's confident that his, that, that his mouth is like a sharp sword in spite of the fact that it looks like there's a failure. And now the Lord says, so God's going to respond now to that. He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, we're looping back to that, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. So that he sees that as his job, right? To bring Jacob, Israel, back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. What actually happened? He was rejected by that very group, by the people to whom he was sent. And that's what Jesus said. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. His primary focus in everything that he did was that right there, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. That sounds very much like good shepherd kind of language. To bring, bring the lost ones back and to gather all of them to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has become my strength. He says, this is God speaking now, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's not even a big enough job description for you. Ultimately, that's too small a goal. No, I'll make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what Simeon said in Luke 2 when he sees him in the temple, when Jesus is brought there to be dedicated. He's been promised that he'll see the Messiah. And so when he sees this baby Jesus, as he holds him in his hands and he looks at the face of this child, he says, Lord, now let us thou, thy servant, depart in peace. I'm ready to die. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. I've made you a light for the nations. What does Jesus say in John 8? I am the light of the world. He's very clear. And, and what does John say in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loved the world. It doesn't say he so loved his people that he sent Jesus. No, that's not what he says at all. That word cosmon, world, appears again and again and again. And that's exactly what God's saying here. No, I've made you a light to the nations, that salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Who was addressed in verse 1? Coastlands, you peoples from afar. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, nation, sorry, singular, the servant of rulers. Kings shall arise and see, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. He's deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. However, kings will see and arise. They will respect him as a king who is greater than they, and so they will rise in his presence. And princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. They not only respect him, they worship him. They recognize that he is he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and they are not. Amen to that. And it's absolutely true. Ultimately, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so that passage right there has such depth of meaning. And you can see the, the frustration in this servant who has proclaimed the greatness of God in his own creation and is bringing him into the world and then says, but it looks like I failed. It looks like I have failed. I've labored in vain. If you've been obedient to the call in the, of the Lord in your life, if you continue to proclaim him, if you pro- proclaim him to your friends, your family, everybody that you come into contact with, that, that the Lord prompts you to speak to, 
you have not labored in vain. God's word does not return to him void. It accomplishes the purposes for which he intended it. Don't consider yourself a failure if you don't have notches in your belt. You have no idea what your belt looks like. Stop trying to measure it that way and and just be obedient and do what God's called you to do. And I promise that if you're obedient to that, then, then what you're doing will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which he intended it. In the gospel today, we've got John 1, verses 29 to 42, and, and this is, um, he's speaking of John the Baptist here. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, who is this Lamb of God? That's a very difficult thing to say. A lot of people say, What's well, the Passover Lamb? But the Passover Lamb didn't take away sin. That was not the point of the Passover Lamb. So we can't say that that's what it is. We can't say that's not what it is either because all of those images of lambs have something to do with this. It has to do with Genesis 22 when the ram's caught in the thicket and Isaac is not sacrificed, but the ram is. It goes on and on through Scripture. There's multiple ways we can look at that, but but the only animal sacrificed for sin is not lambs. It's one of them, but it's not the only option. And so we've got these things. And so, but there's a triumphant part of this. And I believe that if you want to know who the Lamb of God truly is, I believe John's speaking completely prophetically in this way. He's speaking from the past. It's an image that's familiar. And and that's what prophecy always does. It pulls in from the past and projects into the future. And if you want to know exactly who the Lamb of God is, and I don't think John saw it as clearly as we can from our perspective as Christians, is, is you want to know who the Lamb of God is? The Lamb of God is the Lamb looking like it was slain that appears before the throne in John 5 when the angel proclaims, look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns, looks at the throne, and what does he see? He sees a Lamb looking like it was slain. And then all of heaven worships that Lamb, and that Lamb has taken the scroll that no one on earth, under the earth, or in heaven has been found who is capable and worthy of taking that scroll. The Lamb looking like it was slain does. So I believe John's speaking prophetically here. He's taking an image from Israel's past. He's gathering up all those images of lambs from all of Israel's history, and he's projecting it into this. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, here's the word world, cosmon, comes back again. So he takes away the sin of the world. That's his mission, is to take away the sin of the world. So he's greater than a national Messiah. As I said, I think John's speaking prophetically here, and I don't think John's fully aware of the implications of all that he says. I don't think John sees the cross. I don't think he sees all those things when he makes that statement. Because we know that later John sends people to say, are you the one? even though he's seen it. And then John says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, he's preexistent. Even though in time and space Jesus was born after John, Elizabeth got pregnant before Mary did, Jesus was born after John. He says he was before me. It's one of the things that upsets them about that Jesus says later on that he preexisted Abraham before Abraham was. I am. And so here John says exactly that thing. John sees something truly in this that's a powerful statement that I think we tend to overlook. But then he says this, I myself didn't know him. And remember in the prologue to John's gospel, John says he came to his own and his own knew him not. John says, I didn't know him. I'm no different than anybody else. 
In my eyes, in my flesh, I didn't recognize him either. And that's what I was saying earlier. And that is, is that the work of salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. Because without him giving us his Holy Spirit, we can't accept and rejoice in the revelation. He said, I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. In other words, John says, I just did what I was given to do, and I continued to do what I was given to do. And I did it for two reasons. One is to prepare people and to prepare people to greet the king, prepare you the way. He says, but, but, but the other purpose was that I came that he might be revealed to Israel. And through my baptism, through my work, he would be revealed. So the end point of John's work wasn't just to prepare people for the coming of the king. It was to reveal the Messiah to Israel. And John knew that. So at that point, his work was sort of done. And John felt that same feeling that we see in um, Isaiah 49, I've labored in vain. If he's not the Messiah, did I get it wrong? Did I get it wrong? And that's exactly what he's saying here. He's, he's clear here. He's got it completely clear. He said, I bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, which is exactly what God told him he would see. So he's absolutely certain at this point. He says, I myself didn't know him. He repeats it. I myself didn't know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So as soon as I saw that, I knew who it was. But, but later he questions that. Was I deceived? Did Satan send that sign? Or was I right? And I've seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. He didn't say the rest of it this time, but they were with him the day before. They knew what he meant by that. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So these guys who had been following John, been attached to John, discipled by John, now John says, that one's greater than me. And they say, okay, we'll take you at your word, big boy. And they left, and they go follow Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? I mean, you you could tell. uh, They said to him, uh, 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 Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Really? Really? Just go to Yelp, right? If you want to know where to stay, go to Yelp, go to uh, TripAdvisor, go to whatever, and find some place to stay. No, I mean, he just caught them completely off guard. They didn't know what to say. If you believe that he is the Messiah, he is clearly the Son of God, you're following him, and you're walking behind him, and then he turns around and says, what are you looking for? Uh, uh. I mean, that's exactly the way he would react if you thought that he's Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah of Israel, the one we've been waiting for for thousands of years. And he turns around and he speaks to you. You have no earthly idea what to say. So he said to them, come and you'll see. He invited them to come along. They still had to make a choice. So they came and they saw where he was staying. (laughs) And they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So it was, it was kind of too late to try and go back. So one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. I mean, what a great guy. What a great brother, 
what a great relationship they must have had that if he was able to turn and go and find his brother immediately, the first thing I want to do is I want to go tell my brother what I found. The person closest to me, I, I want to go tell him, and he does. So it's a wonderful thing. Andrew is fantastic. I'm, I'm thankful that I grew up in St. Andrew's Church. Uh, he, he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him, the, the other guy, and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which means Peter or rock. So Jesus immediately changed his name. He, he just met him. <laughs> he tells him, this is who you are now. You were the son. Of, and that indicates that ownership. It indicates control. The renaming. It's the same way that God renamed Jacob as Israel. He's saying, I'm giving you a new name now. You're a different person. I'm making you a new person. This is who you really are. When I was in Rwanda years ago, I was going to be there for three months. We had a, a, a kind of a crisis one Sunday morning where I was supposed to preach up in Ruangari. And and as I, I showed up, they said, well, we're thankful you're here, but we have a problem. I said, what's that? And they said, well, you, um, there's nobody here to translate. I said, well, hmm, we got about 15 minutes. Let's just pray that I get the gift of Kenyarwandan right quick. Fortunately, somebody showed up and I preached. And one of the things that I told them was is that one of the things that I wanted was to um, to know what my new name was in the kingdom of heaven. I believe my family named me well. I'm not uh, I'm not ashamed or disappointed in my name, but but I, I but I believe that that there is a new name that God will give us and we'll know what that is ultimately. And so, it, what I told them was is that what I what I've always wanted was something that would bring delight and joy to children, particularly. It's always been an interesting thing with me to watch the way children react. Whenever I've gone on any kind of mission trip, God's used children to, to confirm for me that, that I'm where I'm supposed to be, doing what I'm supposed to do. It's a weird thing, and it's too much that I can explain here in the, in the little bit of time I have left. But at any rate, what I told them was, this is what I've wanted, and so now that I've come to Rwanda, I know what it is. I could have gone anywhere in Africa, and this would have been true. And, and what I said is, I know what my new name is. My new name is Muzungu, which means white. That's, that's it. It just means white. But what it was was everybody there was a little bit embarrassed by that because kids, when I would go anywhere, they would you'd hear this mazungu, mazungu, mazungu. Kids hollering at me, wanted to touch. At that time, I had hair, so they could come and touch that because it was different from theirs, and they hadn't seen all that many white people. In fact, in Rwanda itself, there had been no white people there until the 1890s, and so you know, a man named Johann Speck was the first one to go there from um, Germany. And so that, that's what I, what I want to see, and that's what he does here with Peter. He says, okay, you've, heretofore you've been known as Simon. Well, you're going to be here now. You're going to be called Peter. You're going to be the rock. And ultimately that's what he tells him. You're the rock on which I'll build my church. So in, in, in this we see the revelation of Jesus, but not only is Jesus revealed, he reveals to Peter who he is. And John says, I didn't know him. He had to be revealed to me too. And then now we get the guy to whom it, it took, you know, almost blinding him on the road to Damascus to reveal himself, and that's Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, which shocked Paul because he thought Jesus was a false messiah. But now he sees himself as the one who's called to be an apostle of the one he previously believed was a false, a false messiah who was leading the people astray. And our brother Sosthenes. So it's from the two of us. He says, to the, now who is it to? It's to the church of God that's in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Not just those called, but those who are being sanctified in Christ Jesus. Whose manner of life, his way of life is being changed. Who, who t is being revealed who they are in light of who he is. 
That's what it means to be sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's to conform your life to his example. And then you know more and more and better and better who you really are. He says those are called to be the saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So we're all together all over the world. All those who are called and who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, we're all one. And that's what I was saying about the body of Christ. The goal of the body of Christ is to make him known, and in making him known, the Father's known, and the Spirit is made known. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you. I think, is it presumptuous for Paul to say grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? He's not saying grace and peace from me and Sosthenes. He's saying, no, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No, Paul's saying, I'm an apostle. I can speak for the, for the Trinity because they've made known things to me. And so because we share this thing, we call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, then I can wish you grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. In other words, things have been revealed to you in, in the things you say and the things you know that would otherwise not be knowable to you. That's what revelation is. Things you couldn't know naturally are made known to you. He says, so you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. That, that means the Holy Spirit's working in you, revealing things to you opening your mind, opening your eyes to see all the things in the world around you, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So as long as you're continuing in that testimony, you're continuing to get revelation and knowledge and wisdom so that you're not lacking any, any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a now and a not yet, right? So there's the reveal, the revelation of Jesus occurred in space and time. It's occurring across space and time by the power of the Holy Spirit from the time that he ascended to the Father. From that time in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, that revelation has continued. But the revelation Paul's speaking about here, so you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory when he comes again to judge the living and the dead and establishes the kingdom that will have no end. Paul says you don't lack any gift. And he's enriching you in speech and knowledge as we walk through this life, as we're being sanctified by him, and as we persevere in the work that he's given us to do, as we persevere in obedience, just like John did. doesn't mean you won't have times of doubt and question and saying, am I right? Am I wrong? Am I failing you, Lord? It doesn't mean that. No, it, what it means is, is, is that, that we should stand in that knowledge and know that ultimately God's the one who determines success and failure. What our success or failure is based in is, am I being obedient? what he's called me to do? Am I persevering in the call that he's given me? And, and that's the important thing. And as we do that, then we're not lacking in any gift as we go about the work that he's given us to do as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, which was exactly his promise. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can I be guiltless? Because of the blood of Christ because of Jesus' righteousness that's imputed to me as I make my confession of him crucified on that cross once for all time for the forgiveness of sins. And so as that happens, then, then, then I exchange my sin for his righteousness every time I confess him as Lord and every time I confess my sin to him and give it to him and repent of that sin. 
So we will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, not because we are literally guiltless, but because he was and his righteousness is imputed to us. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what our faith is in. God is faithful. Good enough. All I need to know. He's proven it again and again in my life and all throughout Scripture and all throughout history. I have plenty of witness, plenty of evidence, and plenty of revelation. I have everything that I know to take the step of speaking in his name, rejoicing in him, and proclaiming, proclaiming him to those around me. Think how little Andrew knew when he went to Peter and he said, we have found the Messiah. Little did he know how much more would be revealed. Walk in the revelation we have and more will be revealed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.